Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pantsloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're excited to be speaking with Elizabeth Howard, Acting CEO of the African Crowdfunding Association. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Esther. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to your current role? So I was lucky enough to be born and raised in beautiful Cape Town in South Africa, where I studied economics at the University of Cape Town. When I was a teenager, I was inspired to learn French by an excellent French teacher, and that passion led me to pursuing my master's degree in economics at Sciences Po Paris and ultimately living in Paris for 15 years. I loved academia and economics, and so I started my career as a financial economist at Examen de Paribas and later in consultancy firms in South Africa and France while working on my PhD in economics, which, by the way, I completed, but I didn't get the degree for, and that's a long and painful story. So while working on my PhD at the University of Paris Dauphine, I was trying to find a simple way to fund the tertiary education of a colleague back home in South Africa. So I had met this colleague, Asanda, when she was a domestic worker at one of the consultancies that I was working at and realized through our conversations that she had done really well in high school, but lacked the finance to pursue a diploma that was actually going to get her a job and get her and her son out of poverty. So while I was exploring options to fund her diploma with other colleagues, I came across crowdfunding. Anyway, this was 2013. So clearly this was the solution to that immediate need. But I was intrigued and just as a South African in diaspora living abroad and wanting to continue contributing to economic development back home, I started looking more into crowdfunding and that sort of started the long journey to where I am today. So I quit my job and academic life in 2014 to start an equity crowdfunding platform called Lelapa Fund, whose mission was to link diaspora investors like myself with African investment opportunities on the continent. At the time, regulators in Europe were very hard at work putting in place a special enabling framework for crowdfunding in their countries to support their local SMEs during the Great Recession. And the Napa Fund were one of the first platforms to approach the French regulator to consider a cross-border crowdfunding model. So it's so not only just this national crowdfunding model, a real north-south diaspora crowdfunding model. So that landed us in this regulator gay area as a bit of a guinea pig, which feels nice and pioneering and all those things, but ultimately costs you a lot of money and as a startup, you need a trade-off spending your runway on building a product or spending it on doing regulatory advocacy for the broader project that you have. So we uh, bootstrapped both of, both of those things until about 2018, before deciding to work full-time on the regulatory framework through the African Crowdfunding Association, which we had helped uh, set up in 2016. It was also just easier for us to raise grant funding for that work. Then it was to raise investment capital for the Lapa Fund without any certainty of the rules of our activity. 
So that brings us to today, where I am acting CEO of the African Crowdfunding Association, which is a non-profit industry association here in South Africa. So I've moved back to South Africa, and that's where I lead the drive for regulations for crowdfunding on the continent. That's a great story, Elizabeth. And first of all, I'm from an academic family. My father's a professor, so is my sister-in-law, my other sister-in-law, my brother-in-law. So we're very sympathetic to all the dissertations. I think you can feel like you have achieved your PhD in economics <laughs> and nobody will uh, give you any hard time about that from our side. So what is crowdfunding? Can you please define that for our audience? So crowdfunding is the funding of a project, any project, by a large number of people who contribute individually relatively small amounts of money. And they typically do this via an online platform, which we call a crowdfunding platform. Many people today still think of Kickstarter in the US when they share the word crowdfunding. If you're a millennial, you've probably come across other platforms of crowdfunding. But beyond Kickstarter, the field of crowdfunding is now extremely broad and it continues to evolve as regulators allow more and more people to participate in it. And it seems like this type of finance with, as you say, Kickstarter, I know GoFundMe and some other entities like that have become popular lately. It seems like just the really well-suited tool for something like diaspora finance, right? Like a group of people who already have an emotional interest in a certain area or a certain country. So what is the potential of crowdfunding for things like diaspora finance, as well as small businesses and enterprises in certain locations or certain sectors? Sure. Yes. If you're listening to this, this podcast, you're probably aware of the issues in development finance, and you probably know that the financing gap for African small businesses is enormous and chronic, you know, $140 billion per year, according to World Bank. And that for various reasons, the traditional financing models are inadequate to capture that opportunity. A more nuanced description of that problem, which helps us to see just what the potential crowdfunding could be, is to look at the economics of small-sized investments in African small businesses and ask ourselves the question, can crowdfunding make these small investments more viable on a per-deal basis? And also, can it work at scale? Can we really hit those really large numbers at scale? And if we can, which market segments is crowdfunding really going to add the most value? So if crowdfunding with its combination of retail investors, diaspora investors, and facilitative technology can reduce the cost of a small size investment, and I'm talking the small below $500,000, but, but could be much lower down to $50,000 if you're looking at an equity deal in a country like Senegal then I would say the potential is huge because the demand in that market segment is the largest and it is the most underserved, particularly when it comes to risk capital or forms of capital that are actually going to get that SME to grow. So not just collateralized bank finance. So that's how I would view that question. And I certainly do think that there is a strong potential and certainly that we should explore it more. And so in a deal like that, that you're talking about, Elizabeth, $50,000 for a venture in Senegal that's equity, how would a crowdfund a crowdfunder who puts in, say, $1,000, what does the structure of that cap table look like? How does the entity in Senegal register that investor? How do they pay them back? How does that even work? Sure. There are many ways to make it work. 
when it comes to having a large number of investors on your cap table, that's quite a daunting thing for a young entrepreneur. And the process of orchestrating an investment like that would actually start with a comprehensive investment readiness process for the entrepreneur to understand what it means to have an equity investor in the cap table. For many of these entrepreneurs, learning about a cap table itself would be new. So there's an educational process to go through there. Then from the structuring perspective, depending on the size of the deal and depending on the average uh, investment amount, the entrepreneur and all the platform could actually just tweak those parameters to reconcile some company law needs where there is actually a limit to the number of private shareholders in the company that they have. So if they're doing direct investments, or they could opt to pool those individual investors into a low-cost holding structure. And that can be a private limited company or in a place like Senegal, the SAS structure is very popular. And then basically you've got a very low cost intermediation of the capital happening. And it's in a nuanced way quite different from a fund in the sense that the individual investor is still coming to the platform and still deciding where his or her investment is going to go. So it's clear that ex-entrepreneurs are going to receive the investment. It's not always a blind raise. You can have a, a sort of blind pool. And that's something that we call a crowd investment vehicle, which I can talk more about later. But that enables that light intermediation, which just reduces the burden on the entrepreneur in terms of investor relations and reporting and all of that. That's fascinating. And given the complexity of these structures, are you seeing that more entrepreneurs are trying to raise investment finance through crowdfunding or grant finance? So that's a great question. I think that the demand from entrepreneurs to raise equity capital is significant. The African Crowdfunding Association receives about two to three requests per week from African entrepreneurs who've just found their way to this, this alternative. And on the intermediary side, we're not at quite in the market yet because of the lack of regulations where we have enough equity crowdfunding platforms in their jurisdiction to actually meet that need. Grant funding is, is always very popular. <laughs> There's a huge grant funding industry in Africa and that's very broad. I'm not sure if from an entrepreneurial perspective, we are seeing rewards-based crowdfunding, which is, some, which is basically donations-based crowdfunding in the same way that we're seeing it in platforms like Kickstarter, because there are a number of infrastructural barriers to those models today, including shipping a product across borders and things like that. I don't think the economics of it are, are there yet. But certainly there are obviously a lot of charitable projects using crowdfunding, funding medical bills. And then you've also got this form of crowdfunding where that became very popular during the COVID pandemic, where you had a lot of small businesses that wanted to provide their existing customer base with vouchers just to get some working capital to tide them over until things reopened. And did that work? We saw that here in New York City with restaurants. Did that work in Africa, in the markets that you're following? Did it work? I guess we don't really, <laughs> we can't really answer that conclusively. One indicator that it did work was that we actually had new crowdfunding platforms start up. And I'm speaking specifically about the market that I know based during that time, which was South Africa. And basically the art industry jumped onto that model in particular and the restaurant industry. Yeah, whether or not it works, it's possible to work for a short period of time. I'm not sure if they were effective over a two-year period <laughs> or a year and a half that I wouldn't be able to answer in any detail. I think just to survive that unprecedented shock is some measure of the effectiveness of that strategy. So if it helped a couple of businesses stay alive, then that's a positive. 
So you've mentioned a couple of times, Elizabeth, the challenges of regulation. Why is it so important to have one regulatory standard for crowdfunding across the continent of Africa? That's a great question. And obviously at the African Crowdfunding Association, we've been advocating for a harmonized African regulatory framework for crowdfunding from the beginning. The first reason, which is common to most fintech innovations, is that the activity is innately cross-border. It's online. And crowdfunding is no different. And then if you place that in the African context, there's a few more reasons why it's important. Basically, the individual market sizes, when you look at the potential of deal flows of small businesses, are simply too small to produce a volume of deal flow that's big enough to sustain an equity crowdfunding platform. So from a business model perspective, it's very important that those crowdfunding platforms can actually reach a sustainable scale of deals and that the upfront investments that they have to make on the technology side, the payment side, the regulatory side can be advertised across a number of of markets. Yeah, there's also just the fact that generally there's a weak participation of individuals in formal local capital markets. And so it's important that a crowdfunding platform can tap into pools of capital in neighboring countries or where there is a large diaspora. So the cross-border part of this is, is really important. If we look again at diaspora finance for a group, say Nigerians in the UK, that would imply as well that then the African crowdfunding regulation should match international ones to facilitate cross-border flows from different continents as well. So is there a unified standard between, say, Europe and the United States on crowdfunding? I wish there was. (laughs) So that is a really great point and something that I think we all have to work towards, but is much easier said than done because regulators in the sort of global north don't all have a mandate to do development finance or to facilitate channels of capital for development or impact purposes. Maybe there are a few exceptions, and I believe the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK is at least one regulator that seconds some of its staff to African regulatory authorities to work on these issues. But generally, the way that these two North and South regulatory groups have come together would be on issues of global anti-money laundering subjects and sort of terrorism financing. And then there's sort of other groups of norms like FATF. There are associations, IOSCO, et cetera, to which they're all apart, but the, the relevance of those groups as it relates to sort of diaspora crowdfunding is very limited. And I think perhaps we, yeah, we haven't used those platforms sufficiently. And the African Crowdfunding Association cares a lot about unlocking that cross-border north-south diaspora channel. And so with very limited resources, the furthest we were able to get, um, this is with the another association in France called the FPAM, led by Tamir Mdan, who was also trying to get this going between France and, and North Africa. We were able to bring some North African regulatory authorities into the room with the, the French authority. And that was a very productive conversation that we would have liked to be able to pursue. And I think that the, the next step in that process is really to get the development agencies in the global north to sit down with their regulatory authorities and explain why some bilateral agreements are necessary. I don't think it is practical to have an equivalency between a single framework between the North and the South because the economics are just quite wildly different and I think the value chain of crowdfunding is quite different. There needs to be some sort of agreement 
that does recognize the regulations that are in place in the African country and that the regulators could feel comfortable that their citizens, that they're, they're protecting when they do invest from France into an African crowdfunding opportunity, do have the minimum protections as if they were investing in a French company. Sounds a lot like the regulations required to govern remittances from developed countries to developing. Are there patterns in kind of the regulations of remittances going back and forth between countries that could be useful for you guys here? That's a very good question and a question that I don't know much about. I think there has always been an interest from organizations working on remittances in crowdfunding almost as an, an application of the work that they're doing, which is very much of a peer-to-peer application, whereas crowdfunding is often just yeah, more of a, a B2B or a P2B2B scenario. And I, I think that the, you know, remittances are on lot investments. They're going into sort of consumption where there's some sort of common regulatory questions, or money laundering and whatnot, that affects also crowdfunding. But you don't have this whole concern of the securities markets in crowdfunding as you do, or in remittances as you do in, in crowdfunding. And that's quite a big step. Like I said, there's sporadic interest from organizations working to improve their remittances, infrastructure, and they're rapidly confronted with the same regulatory barriers that we're confronted with and depends on whether they have the mandate to get involved in that space or, or not. Well, as it happens, one of my UNCDF colleagues, Emil Aneha, is leading a global program on remittances to bring down the cost of remittances for workers in some of the biggest corridors around the world. So I'm very happy to connect you and see uh, what learnings we can share between our institutions. And of course, bringing down the cost of remittances is one of the SDG targets because it means it makes such a difference to the poor population and everywhere around the world. So it'd be neat to see this kind of expanded to crowdfunding, which was not in the SDGs because nobody knew what it was at the time. So um, yeah. that would be interesting to see. So Elizabeth, are you seeing more platforms, that is groups or syndicates, or direct investments seeking finance through crowdfunding? Yeah, so in that question where we speak about a, a platform or syndicate, we're speaking about almost a more institutional financier that is now tapping into the crowdfunding opportunity to get a retail investor base onto their platform. So examples of a platform that might be a convergence blended finance platform. Uh, an example of a syndicate might be an angel investment network, or it could be an emerging fund manager. And certainly there, there is a lot more demand historically from, you know, your regular entrepreneurs that are just approaching crowdfunding to raise funding for their, their businesses. That's historically what the regulations have actually permitted. But recently, I think this is very recent, less than a year old and spurred on by, by COVID, regulators in the global north are I believe, investigating ways to enable more of these syndicates to raise funding on their regulations. And so they're sort of new setting up rules around accredited and unaccredited investors. And I think that this is the next step for crowdfunding, really. And I think it has absolutely huge potential, also more in Africa, perhaps than elsewhere, because again, the if you are a syndicate, if you're an angel investor network or an emerging fund manager, that's raising a fund for the first time, your alternatives to, to raise a capital are just severely constrained. And we have already seen some activity that's not necessarily under the radar, but certainly 
a little bit on, on the edges of the regulation where, you know, an emerging fund manager will spend several years trying to get corporate investors or limited partners, traditional limited partners, DFIs, into their fund and will face sort of running out of capital or, or going to the retail investor base. And a lot of them will start with a retail investor base in, in their network. But obviously, that's very important for, from a trust perspective. But they'll be able to do enough track record building deals for a year or two before which time they need to now expand that investor, that retail investor network. And that's when they look to equity crowdfunding platforms and with a view to actually listing their vehicle on those equity crowdfunding platforms and continuing to raise just enough capital for them to build a track record that is then going to tick the box of more institutional LP. So crowdfunding platforms are potentially a really great sort of trampoline or, or stepping stone for those types of intermediaries. And I, I just believe it's a huge win-win because if you're a retail investor, you know, what more could you want than having a professional qualified investor selecting those deals for you and still having the experience of an equity crowdfunding investment process? It's early days for those platforms and so it's using crowdfunding in Africa, but we take such a strong view on the importance of making the regulations enable those types of intermediaries that. So from the beginning of, of our work on the regulatory framework at ACFA, we've had that target as a sort of end beneficiary, so to speak, of the regulatory framework. That's really fascinating, Elizabeth. So in that example, what you're talking about is that for the entrepreneur, the crowdfunding equity investment would come in after friends and family, but before any formal rounds, right? It's almost like a pre-seed getting themselves to a financing round. That's where the crowdfunding money would come in. Was your question from the perspective of a syndicate or an emerging fund manager? So like the crowdfunding money would come into the enterprise at a stage that would be after they had done their friends and family or bootstrapping or whatever they're doing, but before they're going to commercial capital. The crowdfunding is coming in to help them get to the point where they could get some commercial capital? Yes, exactly. Crowdfunding needs to work with the existing capital markets infrastructure out there. It, it needs to be additive and it, it needs to work at the stage of investment that is particularly difficult for institutional investors or venture capitalists or private equity. So the idea is that it, it's a step in the fundraising journey of an entrepreneur that gets them into more formal capital markets. Most entrepreneurs do raise from their friends and family. And when the amounts that they need to raise from that circle are quite significant, and they're doing that without the formalization of a cap table and other aspects of the process, then they are not actually taking a step into formal capital markets. They're potentially, you know, setting themselves up for quite a complicated process when they do eventually require more institutional capital. So. Crowdfunding looks at that space, it looks at the friends and family step and it says, okay, we're going to formalize it. We're going to make it bigger. We're going to formalize it. So even if it is your uncle putting money in, your uncle's still going to be able to a cap table and they're still going to receive uh, mandatory disclosures, still going to understand more about the risk and there's still going to be an accountability there. And that then is a great way for that entrepreneur to practice getting ready for larger external investors. And that's where we believe it has to play its role. That's fantastic. So at UNCDF, we work very hard to address this missing middle finance gap where entrepreneurs are not able to borrow from formal sources. And it's really fantastic to think that crowdfunding could be one tool to address that gap. 
Elizabeth, what is the average ticket size of the deals you're seeing come across the crowdfunding platforms that you track? Sure. Like I said, the investments-based crowdfunding models in Africa are all generally at an early stage because of the lack of facilitated regulatory framework. Nonetheless, on the equity side, there are some emerging success stories where you've seen deals up to $250,000 being raised from uh, local angel investors and from diaspora investors. And I won't comment on the, <laughs> the legality of some of those operations. Uh, we're at a stage where there's a lot of uh, de facto tolerance of the models in the market, just so the regulators can observe for a period of time. And then on the debt side, we're looking at around $5,000 to $10,000 on average in the markets where the models are quite well established and the regulators haven't put limits or sort of risk limits on individual deal sizes. In the agri-crowdfunding space, which I think is the probably the fastest growing and largest type of crowdfunding in Africa. So for those who don't know, agri-crowdfunding is a form of debt crowdfunding that's applied to a particular agricultural value chain, for example, livestock or, or a crop. And the deal sizes have been creeping up. So you $10,000, $30,000, depending on the value chain. And then it's moving sort of into leasing crowdfunding models which is also very interesting with capital equipment, enabling the retail investors to actually tap into a fairly low risk investment. And that, depending on the capital expense, can have an average ticket size of, again, $30,000 to $50,000. And for these type of CapEx expenses for buying equipment or things like that, are those structured more as loans or are those still coming in as equity investments? They're more structured as loans. That makes sense. So what kind of protections for investors and consumers are needed as the field grows? So when it comes to protections for investors and consumers, this is obviously the key role of the regulator. And the spirit of crowdfunding from an investor protection perspective is to look a little bit differently of the, the classic protections that have been put in place. And historically, when it comes to allowing retail investors, people like yourself and myself, access to high-risk investment opportunities. Normally, the regulator would classify an investor as a sophisticated or a first-time investor based on a handful of criteria that are easily observable. How much money do you have? How much money do you and your spouse have? Do you have a degree in finance? What is your experience in other sort of financial markets or S-groups? Now, when you take another look at that, and you look at how relevant it is to the African context and how much of the retail market segment you're actually excluding, you may conclude that now things to technology and other things observe a few more variables and allow you to paint a picture of that individual person's risk profile. And then there is a lot of arguments around just democratizing the gains of private equity to some larger groups. So you shouldn't have a bunch of guys in Silicon Valley being behind every bench capital fund. Why can't we have more retail investors? Can we consider a looser definition of sophisticated investor. And the same thing really goes for the African context. So we're committed to thinking about excluding it and including segments of the retail investment market through the lens of the actual participants. And when you strike that balance between the relevance of the product to them and their ability to participate in it, you're really forced to take a financial inclusion lens to, to the regulations. So for example, if in an agri-crowdfunding value chain, you observe that the individual investors that are getting involved in it, they're getting involved in it because they have access to it and because they understand it and because they know the entrepreneur or they know the crop or they understand the livestock, they understand the, the cycle behind it. There's a financial literacy that's already there. 
And now the question is, okay, what protections do you need to put in place on the intermediary side? What sort of level of checks and balances are we going to have on the intermediary side? And then we'll look at the underlying product and say, okay, how do we describe the risks of this product in a way that these existing participants are going to understand? So instead of taking a sort of checklist of risks that someone has to check during the investment process and then click to the next screen, that could be copy-pasted from the UK or something, you would actually look at the risk and say, okay, can we compare the risk profile of this with another product that this person already has access to? And that gets really interesting because then you've got to understand that person's portfolio of investable opportunities. What is her universe of investable products? And then just speak or define the protections in a language that makes sense. So that's a very interesting exercise. I think it's essential, but also think it's easy to get it wrong. Want to harmonize or align with standards in other countries. And I think that leads you into the risk of excluding too many people. So definitely a lot of work, a lot of innovative work to be done on the investor protection side, but in a way that it really is genuinely inclusive. That's really fascinating, Elizabeth. It sounds a lot like the work that was really pioneered in East Africa around using activity logs of relatively poor people on cell phones to establish alternate credit histories to allow them to qualify for bank loans when they maybe wouldn't have come through the formal process. So it would be really innovative to see that kind of process in a crowdfunding regulation. The other thing to remember, though, I always thought it was so funny that they had these accredited investor cutoffs as if at a certain net worth, you're suddenly better at choosing investments. I mean, there's not necessarily a correlation. And that, of course, even those guys in Silicon Valley, you know, hear a a lot about the deals they invest in that make money, but they lose money all the time too. So there is that line between trying to protect your investors, but also having what's essentially a very risky business because it's very hard to know which businesses will succeed or fail. So pivoting a little bit, please tell us about the Women in Africa Investments Group. Yeah. So the Women in African Investments Group is a peer learning network that I started in 2017 at a point at which I was rather exasperated with the gap between the fintech industry and the institutional investment industry. And that gap showed up where we've got all these entrepreneurs, young fintech entrepreneurs entering the development finance space and looking at this problem of a lack of SME finance through an entrepreneurial lens and saying, okay, what do we have today in terms of technology to attack this differently? And finding that you really have to start with a wildly different business model as an investment intermediary and try and do things differently and a different scale, different economics. And these entrepreneurs are very poorly understood by the traditional development finance space. And it's very hard to get anywhere, even though Everybody, of course, knows that partnerships in this space are essential. So I was very exasperated and I spent many years thinking, okay, is it me? Is it the model? Is it the timing? Is it this? And I said, okay, well, even if it is, there's still this huge educational gap. So I went and invited all of the investors who I'd spoken to, and particularly all of the women, to join a WhatsApp group so that we could speak about these issues and also a lot of other issues, certainly those affecting female entrepreneurs in the space. And it grew very rapidly into this more established network that it is today, which is a membership fee network. I think we're approaching some 160 paying members now. And it has become a very practical and useful network for particularly emerging female fund managers in Africa that are trying to forge relationships with 
development finance institutions, it's become a useful place for female entrepreneurs in fintech like myself to be able to engage on an ongoing basis with the sort of institutional investor base of their business models, how they're different, how to approach them. And it's been very practical to aggregate. So the Women in African Investments group has also become very useful to aggregate comments from the private sector, particularly the, the general partner base, and present that to the development finance space and all the, the LP side of the table in a way that creates a narrative that helps that DFI base understand how to structure their programming if they are trying to increase the number of female investment intermediaries in the African market, if they're trying to reach gender-specific goals, for example, under the 2X challenge. It helps the DFIs to better understand where the GPs are coming from, what the particular barriers are, and as well as being very practically helpful to the women who are able to basically to ask any question that they want. So they almost always get a response, a helpful response from, from other women in the group. So that's a network that's hosted on lilapa.co, which is the website of Lilapa Fund. And good for you for seeing a need in the market and filling it. That sounds like a really terrific and creative solution to a problem that you are seeing. I hope it continues to grow. And for our listeners, I hope that you check out leilapa.co and Women in African Investments and see if we can move this process to help accelerate it. So Elizabeth, as we wrap up, what one thing would you change if you could to accelerate the use and impact of crowdfunding across Africa? One thing is, it's very hard to, to narrow it down, but the sort of meta thing that is required to accelerate the use and impact of crowdfunding, I believe today is actually simply a question of providing more resources, more financial and non-financial resources to African regulatory authorities. There is no lack of interest or commitment to putting in place enabling frameworks. The issue is much more on having the resources to be able to do that. I think there is a really important role here for partnerships between regulated authorities and industry associations. And as I mentioned in our earlier conversations, there needs to be more support on creating platforms for regulators in Africa to discuss with regulators in the global north about unlocking these capital flows from the diaspora. I just believe it's a question of resources, really. Thank you so much. Well, let's see what we can do to try to address that problem. It does seem like there's tremendous potential for crowdfunding, and it's part of this exciting movement, I'd say, that we're seeing of entrepreneurism and growth across the African continent. So it's nice to see that there are people like you who are dedicated to building the frameworks that will really put the structures in place to let these industries grow and scale. So thank you so much, Elizabeth, for coming on our podcast and sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Esther. It's been a pleasure. And thanks also to our audience for tuning in to UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.